So, how did France lose the war? Well, the answer is not exactly clear-cut, but this is this much we do know. One, the French mobilization for the war, you know, actually sending out troops and you know and and weaponry and such was significantly inefficient, whereas the Prussians' mobilization was very efficient. Within 18 days, Prussia and its allies had nearly 1.2 million troops at, the, at, at or near the border. Mm-mm. That's really fast. And, 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 you know, the counts show that, you know, they were not at all, they were like, what? Like, really quickly, they, they realized, like, I think at the time, they had about half a million ready to go in that same amount of time, which is not what you want to see. Second, the French infrastructure was not really considered and maintained for the mobilization of troops, you know, and this meant they were ill-prepared. You know, if your if you're trains and railroads and all of that were not designed to be sending troops out, it's going to take a while. On the other hand, Prussian infrastructure was built for this purpose and was modernized compared to French infrastructure. Aristocrats in France retained their place within the officer corps, which was mainly what, who composed the officer corps at the time, regardless of their actions. On their hand, Prussia filtered for incompetence in the officer corps. They didn't care where you were from. They're like, no, you're a fucking idiot. Get out of here, which makes sense. This is the craziest part. <laughs> France had no general staff. They didn't have g- people in charge of the military aside from Napoleon III. He was in charge of the military. He believed simply because he was the nephew of a military genius that this was enough. Oh, boy. Prussia, on the other hand, had the most significant experienced and uh, they're the most sophisticated experienced and intelligent general staff in the world at least in Europe at this time and had some brilliant leadership of a certain general by the name of Helmut von Moltke additionally the chancellor of Prussia at this time was I don't know if people know their history but a certain Otto von Bismarck who is one of the uh, most famous politicians in modern history because of just being so brilliant in terms of his real politique. Oh, boy. So, eh, maybe it's not too surprising that they got owned. Oh, I'm starting to feel bad for this failed son. <laughs> just kidding. No, I'm not. Now, the emperor left Paris on July 28th. His wife, or the empress Eugenie, ser- served as regent in his absence. That's right. He fled like a little girl, and he left his wife to deal with it. Oh, not quite. I mean, he left with them with the military to go to the war. All right. But just to show how superior the Prussian military was compared to the French, on August 18th, the Prussian army, with a strength of 188,000, fought the French at the Battle of Gravelot. The Prussians inflicted 20,000 casualties and only received 12,000. This led to a demoralization among the French military because it was such a quick battle and... They were, it was an overwhelming victory by the by the by by the Prussians, and you know, kind of kind of pointed to before, the French thought that they were unstoppable. They were going to win. So how the hell did they lost such an important battle? And from their point of view, so very quickly, Prussians started to advance towards Paris with almost no significant defeats of any kind, and a siege of Paris seemed inevitable at this time. Spoiler alert. It was. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Paris, there was an anxiety about the siege on the horizon. There, this presented an opportunity for the left. There was an attempt at an insurrection on August 14th by a group of Blancists. This failed. One of the general staff, General Louis Trochu, had suggested a retreat to Paris in order to defend the capital from a siege. Rather than listen to this common-sense proposal... <laughs> Like, it seems like a, yeah, that makes sense. Napoleon rejected it, believing this would threaten his empire. Oh, God. Mm. Just the ego talking. I mean, also, he was mad at Paris a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. So instead, he made Trochu the military governor general of Paris on August 17th in order to suppress civil unrest. Yeah, that'll suppress it. <laughs> Parisians were not happy about this. Uh, during an attempt to rescue the besieged troops at Lamont's, like, and there was basically there was a battle at Lamont's, and then many troops were put there, and, and the general there and all the, the troops were stuck there. Napoleon III and his forces were intercepted. They were tending to you know liberate this besieged troops, and they were intercepted by the Prussian army on August 30th. This attack forced the French to the town of Sedan, near the Belgian border, and there, the following day, on September the 1st, the French were owned in that battle, and the following day, September the 2nd, the emperor and 100,000 soldiers surrendered to the Prussians. The emperor surrendered. 
Oops. Once the Empress heard news of the surrender to the Prussians, she quickly asked Adolf Thier, remember him? He's now irrelevant again. Adolf Thier, who was the, you know, the former liberal prime minister under Prince, uh, 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 King Louis-Philippe. He's still in the mix, folks. He's, he's, still, he's still in the running. And it's going to become even more, more important now. He was, she quickly asked him to have provisional authority of the government, but he turned her down because he saw the running on the wall. He's like, I'm, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be the captain of this, of this sinking ship. Yeah. Like your government is fucked. You're like, I'm not going to have we that need on a me. new Republic. And then maybe I'll talk about yeah. being a part of it. And you know, on September 3rd, there was a, the following day of, of uh, Napoleon surrender. There was a meeting of representatives from the National Assembly discussing what must be done given the surrender of the emperor. A moderate Republican by the name of Jules Favre proclaimed the end of the empire late into the night. And it was pretty late. And he's like, guys, like, it's over. And much tumult followed the next day. And it makes sense. You know, there's a lot of conflicting legitimate claims to power. You know, it's like, just crazy. And there's no one who's like saying, oh, I'm in charge. No one's in charge. So it's going to be a, a you know, power vacuum, especially with like an emperor being gone. And this led to the third French Republic being declared. And this is what it declared. They were like, no, we're a Republic now. And Favre assumed the role of foreign minister. And uh, at that, for, for years at that time, it was an anti-imperial activist. Anti-imperial, not in the contemporary sense, but against the empire of the French empire. Uh, Leon Gambetta, he became Minister of the Interior. Now, with the Prussian siege looming, the new republic had an enormous challenge. Yeah, it's really tough. You're, you're, oh, we're making a new government, but also we're in the middle of the war. The war is still happening. Now, despite being quite moderate, the rest of France was significantly more conservative than the government. You know, remember who that those yes votes are like, yeah, sure. They're still much more conservative than the people in charge right now. Additionally, the left, particularly the Blancists, were upset with the government as they are. You know, it's not they're not they're not doing what the left wants. You know, they're not you're not doing the truly democratic republic that that they envision. And the provisional government of the Third French Republic, this was known as the government of national defense. They feared an insurrection in Paris of the of radical republicans and also socialists. Thus, Tolchou, you know, former governor general of Paris was kept on. They kept him on as the interim president to reassure conservatives and moderates of their moderate government and their ability to control the possibility of an uprising. Don't yeah, tr- good luck with that. Well, the empress and many wealthy people left Paris. They're like, nope, nope, fuck this, I'm out. The, the left took this chance as an opportunity. Rigault arrived in Paris, you know, remember him? Came back on September 5th, the day after the declaration of the new republic. He plotted with other Blancists for an insurrection. You know, these Blancists really love to do insurrections. They just keep on trying, you know. You got to hand it to them. They yeah. got moxie. They're, they're, they're on their grind. You know, they're really trying. Um, they successfully accomplished a jailbreak of political prisoners. Wow. During this period of time, Regault managed to install himself as head of security <laughs> of Paris. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm the captain now. Damn. And was that as part of the National Guard? Um, there was like a different, uh, uh, security of Paris, like kind of like, oh, okay. you know, basically the police chief. They were in cahoots though. So the well, National Guard becomes important. Yes. Well, well yes, there definitely were. There's a lot of, a lot of, it's an important question that also kind of a little, becomes a little, a little blurry a little bit, but you know, by the September in 1870, people began using the word commune more and more to describe what they specifically wanted from the government. Because again, it's commune meaning self-determination of Paris in terms of governance and in terms of electing people. But before it was just like a fringe demand. Now more people are starting to say this. Again, this is still just self-determination in the municipal sense. But keep this in mind. Well, Jamie can tell us a bit more about the uh, siege. Yeah. No, that's really interesting that that's what commune means because I, you know, I, I hear the word commune. I'm like, oh, it's like, you know, a place where a bunch of dirty hippies live and... Uh, right try to make communism within capitalism or whatever. Well, I mean, like in, in, in France, the, ter- the the official term for the cities, I think, if I remember correctly, to this day, is still commune. Nice. I mean, it's a community. Right, right, right. right. That's obviously part of it. There are many valences to this word. Yep. Um, but I like most of them. So 
yeah, before we can get to the commune, there's a lot more bad stuff that's going to happen. Very important bad stuff. Yeah. Unfortunately. So in 1870, the Prussian army surrounds Paris. Siege. Just like we always knew they would. So the conditions going into this were interesting. All right. Um, the French army had a lot of prisoners of war on the front lines. All right. So these people were not necessarily inclined to be totally loyal to France. Um, they also had many new recruits, including a bunch of young men from Brittany who didn't even speak French. Well, that's not helpful. Remember, France was not a cohesive nation quite yet. Right. Um, so... What else? We got the National Guard is the largest armed force in Paris, 300,000. Many of these men had very little experience. Um, it was also organized by neighborhoods. And did, did most of the people were typically workers, too. Uh, well, the richer neighborhoods was not all workers, and those tended to favor the French government, while the poorer neighborhoods did not. Um, and not surprisingly especially the working class neighborhood divisions of the French, of the National Guard. They were known for insubordination. They wanted to have input and even elect their own officers. Wow. Democracy. Um, yeah. So the National Guard from the poorer neighborhoods became a major force of the commune. So what happened next? The Germans, the Prussians, they surrounded Paris um, radicals saw that the government of national defense was pretty ill-equipped to defend itself, um, despite its name. Lol. <laughs> uh, turns out it was just a clever name. Um, the more working class units of the National Guard, they marched to the city center and demanded the election of a new government, a commune. Wow, folks. Yep. And, you know, this is the first of many marches that was dispersed by loyalists. The fucking bootlicking Bonapartists. Ooh. Um, there were a few more marches with the same result, one led by Eugene Varlin of the First International. Um, now there were a series of armed attacks tried. So at the same time that they're sort of fomenting rebellion, they're also under siege by the Prussian army. Um, so the National Guard, they were trying and trying and trying to break the siege. It didn't work. And furthermore, the Prussians cut all the telegraph lines so Paris could not communicate with the rest of the country. Um, the Minister of Defense at this point fled Paris by hot air balloon. That's some steampunk shit, folks. You can't make this up. That's kind of cool, to be honest. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a pretty cool way to leave. You know what? I've been owned. Goodbye. Goodbye. Good luck, guys. Um, I hope that you do okay. Y'all figure it out. Y'all got this. Yeah. So that's in, that's insane. The imagine if like like America had a war and the Secretary of Defense like, all right, I'm out. Y'all yeah. got this. I'm out. <laughs> yeah, not does not fill you with confidence. So let's see what happened then. October 27th, the French army of 150,000 at Metz uh, surrendered. There was another failed attempt to break the siege of Paris. Now Halloween, ooh, spooky season. Um, Blanqui and other radical leaders called some new demonstrations and 15,000 people showed up in the rain wow. calling for the resignation of General Trocu and the proclamation of a commune. Once again, again they keep saying the it. magic word. They keep saying the word that instills fear in their heart. Mm -hmm. They they entered the Hotel de Ville, which is a government building in Paris, demanded a new government. Basic, but, basically the city hall. Yeah. But the loyalist troops recaptured the building. Womp womp. Um, so cool that it happened on Halloween, too. It is cool. Do you think they were wearing costumes? Ooh, that's an interesting. <laughs> ooh, we should try to find that out. That's well, really interesting. We should find out if they celebrated. I, I'm guessing no. Oh, I think so. But like... 1860s, I feel like they probably... 1870? What like, if they were all dressed up like ghosts and shit? I know, I know during that period of time, the U.S. did. Ooh, so, all right. Like, I know the Halloween is not that contemporary it was definitely definitely pre predated the 20th century i, know I just that. know they don't have it everywhere that's true but like i do know like all right this this french th i'm like going way off topic but this french dude that i was like kind of dating the summer that i lived in paris yeah was like obsessed with halloween oh yeah <laughs> and he had like a full sleeve of halloween tattoos that's really cool yeah, no, he was a weird guy. <laughs> He's a weird, cool guy. Shout out to Stan. Wonder what you're doing now. 
You were really cool. Uh, tell really tell me more about how you Americans to celebrate Halloween. Yeah. And then he like he told me that he was going to make his other sleeve uh, a Christmas one. And I couldn't tell if he was joking. <laughs> what? He said, oh, we, uh, Noel. This, this, <laughs> this man really wanted to have like, like, not, not like, was like the, uh, Nightmare. Oh, the holiday. The Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, Nightmare Before Christmas. He wanted to have yeah. Nightmare Before Christmas sleeves. I wonder if he ever did the, the second one. Interesting. I'd love to know. Maybe maybe he's listening and he'll hit me up. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, um, back to France in the history part. So, uh, city authorities, they organized a plebiscite and won. A plebiscite is like, you know, where people vote on, do you still support us or not? Right. But, you know, as we know, bourgeois democracy certainly has its limitations. Right. So two days later, we had municipal councils in each of the 20 arrondissements voted to elect mayors. Um, five of the councils elected radical opposition candidates, including Delescluze and a young doctor from Montmartre named Georges Clemenceau. Um, now, this guy is going to keep on coming up, right? He's a Republican but he's like kind of a compromise guy. Like he would later try to, you know, like work it out between the Paris communards and the French government. And like, everyone's like, no, fuck off. Um, also, he would later be the prime minister of France, but we don't have to talk about that yet. All right. Um, what else? Okay. Adolf Thiers tries and fails to get other countries help with the war. Uh, then he's like, guys, guys, fellow government guys, uh, we got to make a deal with Germany. Uh, but Germany wants way too much. The French government's like, no, we're just going to keep fighting this war, but they're not getting anywhere. Right. All right. And in the meantime, winter is coming. Yeah. Winter is here. Winter is here. Winter is here. There are shortages of food. They can't get enough firewood. They can't get enough coal. They can't get enough medicine. It's rough. Comms are shut off, remember? So they can't even like tell people about it. Yeah. And what happens next? The people of Paris, they're forced to eat all of the animals in the zoo. Yeah. Followed it, by rats. No, and it got it got to the point it was so bad that like, you know, as opposed to, you know, typically people conceive of their dogs of defending them and protecting them, people started protecting their dogs from people and hiding them because they wanted want people to Ooh, steal their dogs boy. to eat them. That is so fucking dark. Um, I also read there were ca- two beloved elephants named Castor and Pollux at the Paris Zoo that people would like ride around on them oh, man. and everybody loved them so much, oh, which is like probably already like kind of a bad life for an elephant. Sure. But then they killed and ate them, Ooh. which everyone probably was like really bummed about doing that. I think the elephants were probably bummed. Yeah, they were pretty like bummed about sad, it. sad time for everyone. But um, there were some menus. These there are some menus surviving from this time. Yeah, for like the of course you know of course you know the 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 the, the wealthy the bourgeoisie had a different siege experience. Now, what what remained of the bourgeoisie? Let's say in yes. Paris. Yes, not everyone could get out. I mean, there was there were you know some of this was saved because we uh, we know about this because uh, <laughs> there was a, a the American diplomat to Paris was in the siege during this time. Can you imagine being that guy? You think, oh, hell yeah. I want to be the diplomat of France and we're in Paris. This is easy. State stability. Don't have to worry about, you know, going to somewhere where it's going to be, you know, I could get bit by a mosquito or die of malaria or like, you know, get like, nope, it's going to be really easy. Smooth sailing. Eat some nice French food, some wine. And then this fucking thing happened. By some nice French food, we mean the fucking zoo animals. <laughs> so we, that's how some of this we know about, actually. Yeah, so um, there were a number of siege menus that went around at this time. And some people think that the chefs were like doing a little bit of satire on the government, which is not to say that they did not actually make all the things on the menu. Right. But it was sort of like a satire in flesh. Yeah, they were, they were trying to be provocative to be like, look at this shit that we have to do. Yeah, so let's just read some from this menu because this is um, there's two yeah there's two menus we got hors d'oeuvre that involves um, a stuffed donkey head (laughs) I guess that wasn't something they normally ate I guess not Um, they had um, the soup was a a puree de haricots rouges au croutons that's normal that's pureed red beans with croutons oh and consommé d'éléphant 
Again, not something normally on the menu. The elephant, you know, an elephant. Yeah. Mm. yeah. That's the delicacy, so maybe. For the main course, <laughs> they had um, le chameau roti à l'anglaise. That's um, roasted camel, English style. <laughs> As well as, like, why would the English know how to cook a camel? Yeah, clearly they're they're, they're taking the piss. As well as uh, le civet de kangourou, which is oh kangaroo stew. Oh. Um, they had cote ouur, roti sauce poivrade. So that's bear chops roasted with pepper sauce. Oh, my God. I mean, maybe it was good. We don't know. I mean. It's just, like, totally absurd that they were eating this shit. Yeah, and I'll read from, my, from the menu that that I'm reading from. Um, oh, wait. One more. Let me tell you a few more. Just the funny ones. Okay. All right. There was a cat flanked with rats. Oh, my God. <laughs> which is, like, very degrading for the cat. I would not want to go down that way if I were a cat. Um, oh, and for dessert, they had Gruyere cheese. Okay. <laughs> Nothing weird about that. Very normal. Now, there's another menu, and this was actually translated in English um, as, it, as it existed, is... Um, they had something known as siege bread. I don't want to know what that was. We do, we do not want to know what that was. I don't want to know what that is. Um, horse soup. Oh, my God. Dog cutlets. Mm. A ragu of cat. Oh, God. Donkey. Just straight up donkey. A filet of mule and roast ostrich. And we know about this dinner specifically because a certain Mr. Washburn the, of the United States Embassy mm-hmm. was, presented, was present at this dinner in Paris, which was one of the last given before... The capitulation. So, it's the guy I was talking about before. This guy, this guy was there and he had to eat this. Wow. That's what you get for being an imperialist. That's what you fucking get, man. I mean, it does make me think, though. Like, maybe instead... I mean, look, I don't think it's any more barbaric to eat the zoo animals than, like, farm animals. I, myself, I am a pescatarian. I agree with that. I think it's all fucking barbaric. But, like, for the benefit of the people who do eat meat, which is most people... Like maybe in addition to having a zoo in the middle of the city, there should be like a farm of some sort, you know, just in case. Because I feel like farm animals probably taste better than the ones in the zoo. I mean, they're probably easier to maintain. Or maybe they could just get tastier zoo animals. Folks, it's not a good time. <laughs> I'm going to run. That's going to be the platform when I run for city council. I'm going to be like tastier animals in the prospect park zoo in case we're ever under siege close rikers open up the open, <laughs> open up the zoo i mean op, op, open up the the open the, up the zoo for dining ooh. purposes you know like think about it that is gonna be the largest reserve of meat in any given metropolitan area once the fucking food runs out so that's very dark, Jamie. It's a very know? dark platform. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, I hope it doesn't come to that. But if it does, wouldn't it be great if you could eat tastier animals? What would, how would you sell this? How would you, Jason, Jamie, how would you pitch this to the DSA for endorsement? I, you know what? <laughs> I got to think about it. But as you know, DSA is really allergic to talking about the insurrection. So I feel like I wouldn't get that far. It's a funny thought. So, yeah, I'm going to workshop that and come back to you with some ideas. But you know what? That might necessitate a breakaway from DSA by the more radical caucuses. <laughs> but even them, even them, they might look at me like, you know, Jamie, you, I, I don't know what you're smoking. Anyway, um, <laughs> so January of 1871, the siege is continuing. The German army is like, are you fucking kidding us? We are so sick of this shit. You are not going to win this war. And we're also tired of doing the siege to you. Right. Let's end it right now. So they start shelling the city day and night. Um, the French army is defeated on four fronts Damn. already. People are pissed off. Right. They're so tired of it. Yeah. And important to mention, Jamie, that, you know, on January 6th, during this period of time, Paris was filled with red posters plastered on buildings with the word... <sighs> Make way for the Paris Commune. It's happening. It's coming. And to keep talking about it. More and more people are talking more about more. it. You just got to keep talking about it. And sometimes it fucking happens. So, yeah, there's lots of agitation in the political clubs and in the National Guards of working class neighborhoods. Um, January 22nd, radical troops, mostly Blanquist again, gather outside the Hotel de Ville. Once again. They want the military placed under civil control and... They, they want to immediately elect a commune. So gunfire breaks out. Each side blames the other. Six demonstrators are killed. Um, the government cracks down. They ban two publications. 
Le Revue of Delisquies and Le Combat of Piat, I'm butchering that pronunciation, arrest 83 revolutionaries. Well, not a lot of luck for the Blanquis so far, but they are not being dissuaded. They're, they're keep, they're keep, they keep trying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got you to respect that at least. Yeah. So at the same time, the government of <laughs> national defense in Bordeaux <laughs> decides they need to end the war. Funny how that happens right <laughs> after people try to do a coup. Hmm. Um, it's they, like, no, it's getting, it's getting out of hand. It's getting yeah. out of hand. Not, 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 people, not everyone dying. No, no. It's like, that's, that's getting out of hand. Direct action gets the goods, folks. Uh, January 26th, they sign a ceasefire and an armistice with special conditions for Paris. All right. So under these conditions, the city would not be occupied. Okay. Um, regular soldiers would give up their arms, but not be captured. Uh, I guess there are some special soldiers. Well, I mean, basically like for. the, like basically not the office of core, I guess, probably. Yeah. So Paris would pay 200 million francs. That's a lot. Sacre bleu. Let's not forget about all the debt that they had before the war too. So mm-hmm. it's not, not mm-hmm. good. And Otto von Bismarck agreed not to disarm the National Guard so as to keep order in the city. Okay. Fatal mistake. Mm, interesting. Um, interesting. But, but cool. Uh, they give all of Alsace and a third of Lorraine to the Prussians. And people were not happy about that So at all. that's going to be part of Germany again. And then on March 1st, as part of the agreement... 30,000 Prussian soldiers marched in a victory parade along the Champs-Élysées just to rub everybody's faces in yeah, it. Yeah, the Parisians were, like, furious Parisians about this. do not love it when a victorious <laughs> invading army marches along the Champs-Élysées. So then, oh, oh, look, it's time for an election now. So we have parliamentary elections in 1871. The conservatives win a majority, somehow still. Uh, the Republicans win a large minority and a few socialists win as well. Um, but in Paris, the socialists fucking dominated. So with these elections, a bunch of people on the left feared that the conservatives were going to reinstate the monarchy and this nascent republic. Even the republic, even the liberal ass republic would not survive. Right. And it's important to mention, and thank you so much for that, Jamie. It was a great uh, review of like a, Dark period, but an important period of the history of Paris. But it's important to mention because, you know, everything we talked about before about the conditions leading up to the Franco-Prussian War, then you have this horrible, horrible siege of Paris of how, how it really affected people. Now, many young, like, I think if I remember correctly, the people who were most particularly hurt by it were the, the, the elderly and the very young and in fact, something that was a common sight every day during that period of time, especially the later later days of the siege, which was about four months, but in the later days of, the, of that siege, you would see little coffins being taken everywhere. Oh, God. So it was a very dark period, but very. But it's important to mention because everything we talked about, and then you have this, no wonder resistance kept going, and then, well... And we got to think about like the economy during this time as well. Yeah. Like the workers were suffering, immigrants were suffering. There were no jobs. There were no goods. Like everything it, was fucked. Yeah, you have to. People had to fucking eat the zoo animals. Like that's insane. Now on seventeenth of February, the new parliament elected the seventy-four-year-old Adolphe Thiers as chief executive of the Third Republic. He was considered to be the candidate most likely to bring peace and to restore order. Long an opponent of the Prussian War, Thiers pursued, persuaded Parliament that peace was necessary. And as we saw from before, what Jane was talking about, he traveled to Versailles, where Bismarck and the German Emperor were waiting, and on the 24th of February, Germans was signed. Now, everything we talked about before, you know, it's kind of grounding, grounding us on that. Let's talk about a little bit Parisian National Guard that, wasn't, that was not unarmed, <laughs> was not disarmed, better said. And it was not a professional army, but, you know, we talked about before, a collection of ordinary men who volunteered to defend the city, you know, from different neighborhoods, but nonetheless volunteers for the most part. And they were mainly people from worker and middle-class families. If you remember, we talked about the Prussian march down the Champs-Élysées on, uh, on March 3rd. Demonstrations started occurring almost daily at the Palace de la Bastille. You know the famous, the famous palace of best, the famous Bastille. Love the Place de la Bastille. To this day, nice little place to go have a picnic. I've never been. It's great. Um, I it's been many years, but like one of the cool little um secret things to do in Paris is there's like a little canal by the Bastille, 
Hmm. And there are locks to like raise the boats up and down mm-hmm. going on different levels of water. And I don't know. I mean, I haven't been there in like fucking 10 years, but at least it used to be where you could like go press the button and you can make the lock go. Uh-huh. And it was really fun to watch it. Huh. Fun fact. Anyway, that's very interesting. So we have once the Prussian troops left from, you know, after the demonstration and after the march and then the armistice left and the part of the armistice, the Paris would not be occupied. Once they left, the new government passed laws that really, really just awful, just total affront to the working class of Paris. You know, on March 7th, the assembly ended the moratorium on the payment of bills of exchange, basically like, you know, that payment that I'll pay, I'll owe you later. And adding that the holders must redeem them with interest during the next four months. This debt. This destroyed small business people, and you know, and you know, basically the petite bourgeois, and at least a hundred fifty thousand Parisians very quickly defaulted under old bills. Not good. Additionally, the assembly ended the moratorium on the payment of rent. Yes, they they suspended rent during the siege. They suspended rent during the siege, which you know, good. But then they're like, no, let's stop, and now you could actually be evicted. They also suspended two radical newspapers. The French do not like it when you do that. No, nope, nope. The Cri de Pipo of Jules Vallée and, and Le Mont de André of what we talked before and Rochefort, which further inflamed, you know, Parisian radical opinion. Finally, you know, somehow they, they still could not find more reasons to get people mad. They ended, and this is just stupid. They ended a daily stipend of one one point fifty francs a day to the national guardsmen. You know the Come people, on, guys. you know the people who have the guns. The people who still have all the guns and have not been disarmed. And they're like, "Yeah, we're gonna stop paying you every day." All right, if you say so. That's fuck yeah. around, find out. <laughs> That's just so stupid. But uh, so yeah, basically the new government of the Third French Republic. You know, no. there's a new elected government. I mean, to be fair, the the government was broke. Yes, that's true. That they had the things they had to pay, and also the debt from before, right from all the all the the improvement renovations of Paris. Oh, France is fucked. <laughs> yeah, so it's not looking good. Has had left hundreds of thousands of proletarian Parisians, petite bourgeoisie of Paris, and also the national government, people with guns. Remember the people with guns, to the point of like you know, you know, not you know, doing well, you know, which is already you know on top of a struggle city plagued by massive inequality and starvation from a siege. Additionally, <laughs> they're fuming with anger from the armistice deal with Germany. And having felt humiliated in their capital. Owned. Furthermore, we have a radical revolutionary left having a more and more prominent role in Paris. What could go wrong for Adolphe and his government? Seems mm. really, I don't know. Well, after the war, there were a bunch of cannons floating around, paid for by the public. You know, the new National Guard Central Committee, and which is full of radicals, put them in the parks of working class you know, neighborhoods to keep them from normal army. And I wrote this part. Sorry. No, no worries. <laughs> and, 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 and defend Paris against the national government. That's right. The national, the based army was keeping the cannons away from the normal army. Right. And they knew they fucking knew that you, some shit was going to go down. Yeah. They're like, mm, I don't know if we should, we, we should, we should, let's be, let's be strategic here. Cause you know, if you're not going to be fucking paid anymore, you're like, you don't care. So on the anniversary, and it's important, it's important, on the anniversary of the revolution of February 24th, 1848, so basically February 24th, 1871, there was a crowd which formed the Place de la Bastille, surrounded, surrounded the Place de la Bastille. Two days later, on February 26th, the police drowned an ordinary person who, who just, you know, their crime? Simply noticing that they were being watched by an undercover police officer. Damn. This was, you know, let's not cry. Now, Parisians at this time, and historically and now, hate the cops. So they already hated the cops, and then they did something that was clearly, absolutely not at all justified. And you know what? This kind of gives some context to the cop drowning that that fucking lib was crying about in the New Yorker, remember? Yeah. He was like, oh, but the communards did so much bad stuff. Oh my God, they drowned a cop without mentioning right. 
you might have wanted to mention that this happened before that. It's almost as if they were trying to be like, this is payback for when you did that, when you killed one of our own, like this motherfucker. You know, it's a fucking revolution. All right. They did abolish the death penalty, though, after that. Well. <laughs> okay. After they had paid the cops back for drowning that guy. Okay, you know, and a crowd, you know, a crowd of Parisians overwhelmed the soldiers protecting the cannon at the Place Wacom and hauled these guns to the height of Montmartre. Very hilly, very hilly neighborhood, very mm-hmm. easy to defend. Right. And at the same time, these crowds rushed to the St. Prélégie prison and freed political prisoners who were there. The general in charge of the Paris region commanded the National Guard to put down the riots. And guess what? Very few responded. Yeah, because they were the ones doing the riots, idiot. Yep, yep. So, okay. Then on March 18th, 1871, about 4,000 French troops attempted to seize the cannons of the National Guard stations in Montmartre in a plan spearheaded by tears over some objections from the Minister of War who knew that the French army had been greatly weakened by the war and by radicalization. Um, But he's like, you know what, whatever, we're just going to fucking do it. Right. Um, The 6,000 troops sent to Belleville, La Villette, and Menilmontant, which were other working class neighborhoods, also did not manage to seize the cannons, although it initially looked like they were going to. So what happened to Montmartre? Pardon me. What happened to Montmartre was the army shot and killed a National Guardsman further inflaming tensions and drawing a crowd. General Lecomte tried to withdraw, but he was surrounded. So then he tried to order the soldiers to fire on the crowd, but they refused three times and most of them turned on him. That is so dramatic. Damn. Yeah. Damn. They're like, Damn. do it. No, do it. Uh, no, do it. Is, no. That's like a fucking tear in reality. I love that so much. That is, that is the moment when the revolution happens. That is the moment that we all dream of for our whole entire lives. Yeah. They're, they're just like, no, we're not going to do that. Yeah. So then the National Guard took him, General Lecomte, and his officers Damn. to the local headquarters of the National Guard at the ballroom of the Chateau Rouge. This is so classy. Where they got yelled at pelted with rocks and generally fucked with by a crowd in a struggle session but in a ballroom that's like the Frenchest shit ever yeah just like lynching a general in a beautiful grand ballroom probably with like a was like nice music in the background too yeah yeah with a fucking court string quartet playing so <laughs> there's a new group formed called the committee of vigilance and they decided to move them to a new location and demanded they be tried and executed fair enough Harsh, harsh realm. So the next day, they took an additional prisoner, General Jacques-Léon Clément Thomas. They're just taking all these generals. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. And he, oh, poor guy. He was a Republican, but he was hated by Napoleon III and the radical workers alike. That's Damn. what you get for trying to be in the middle. Damn, he just could not pick a side. Yeah, and, and he had also been a strict discipline guy ooh, during the siege, ooh, yeah, so that, that didn't win him any friends. Ooh, yeah, if, you, if you're like, a, you're like no, st- like stop, stop trying, like stop, no, stop, <laughs> stop trying to do, stop getting mad about the siege, and it's like, you're not going to get yeah, any... No, and the way they found him is funny, because he'd been snooping around in disguise, but the National Guard soldiers recognized and caught him. Well, wait a minute, you're... Uh this is like something out of a cartoon i love it so much so yeah the crowd attacked and killed both of these men um the operation to recapture the cannons had officially failed at this point owned you got owned you got owned folks and tiers did what he probably should have done to begin with if he was smart which is he pulled all of the government troops back to versailles to regroup so now we got a new government in Paris organized to rival the, new, the national government, which was being organized in Bordeaux. So remember, as per the armistice, the National Guard had not been disarmed. No, they still had all the guns. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, they kind of did what they wanted. This is so, so stupid. This is so stupid. I'm just yeah. thinking, it's just, it's just really <laughs> fucked up, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, they did. So between the 15th and 24th of February... The National Guard elected some 500 delegates and they began meeting in Paris. On the 15th of March, just before the confrontation between the National Guard and the regular army over the cannons, we had, I say we because I feel like they're my comrades, uh, 1,325 delegates of the Federation of Organizations created by the National Guard. They elected a leader, 
Giuseppe Garibaldi, who was in Italy and respectfully declined the title. Who's you know, an interesting figure in his own right, complicated. You know, he was uh, someone who, I think he had like some positive opinion of the Second International. Um, he was kind of sympathetic to many socialists, also was not one himself. He was most responsible for unifying Italy as well. That is interesting how they just randomly elected an Italian too. Yeah. Yes, he also had like some positive opinion of Simon Bolivar. It's an interesting figure. Yeah. Well, maybe they were trying to do a compromise candidate. Who knows? Gotta gotta look into him a little more. Can't look into everybody, folks. That's true. Um, and let's see, they created a central committee of thirty-eight members. Hmm, funny how that just seems to be a natural way of organizing things. Um right. they made their new headquarters in a school. Um, importantly, the first vote of this new central committee was to refuse to recognize the authority of General Dorel de Paladin, who was the official commander of the National Guard appointed by Tiers, or of General Vinoy, the military governor of Paris. We do not recognize your authority. Fuck you. You won't. I don't do what you tell me. Yeah. Yeah. We will not respect your authority. <laughs> That's what they said. They're like, no, this is a commune. We're oh doing it. We're fucking doing it. So March 18th, the regular army, they leave Paris. And the National Guard takes control of the city. So what happens now? The Blanquists, who were based, uh, they want to march on Versailles to defeat Tyr's forces before they could regroup, which, you know, kind of smacks of permanent revolution. It's kind of like what Trotsky wanted to do. Um, but before... Like, like, like keep it going. Like, it's like, just no. keep it going, guys. We just got to keep it going. We got to take over the rest of France right away. But the majority of the people in this new government, they wanted to solidify a base of legal authority in Paris first. And I'm wondering, is this lip shit or was it smart? I'm not sure. I mean, can you really blame them? Look how much shit people have been going, gone through at this point. Maybe they just want to like, let's just sit down a little bit. Yeah. Savor the victory. And also just like, you know, I want to, a lot of people especially wanted to like have some stability given you know, you had the siege, the war, you know, the past 20 years wasn't so good. You're like, you could see a little glimmer of like, maybe things could be a little good for a bit. Yeah. Also, this government is like a week old. So yeah. it makes sense. That they'd want to like try to get a vibe going right. before they uh, try to conquer more places. Right. And also the second, the third French Republic is also not quite, well, you know, it's quite young as well. It's only a year old at that point anyway. So it didn't really have yeah. true legitimacy yet. There's also no evidence that the rest of France would have supported them. Yeah, that's also true. There is no, <laughs> like, I mean, like based on what we know from like the votes, it maybe might've been smart to just, let's maybe just, in the cities, but yeah. not in the majority of France. No. So what happened next? This central committee, they officially lifted the state of siege. Hell yeah. Uh, they named commissions to administer the government and they called more elections for the 23rd of March. They also sent a delegation of mayors of the Paris arrondissement led by our friend Clemenceau, who is the mayor of Montmartre to try to negotiate with tears in Versailles to obtain a special independent status for Paris. Obviously this did not work. Yeah. yeah, Right. Um, He also tried to offer a compromise where each side got to keep some of the cannons, but surprise, surprise that did not work either. I mean, Hey, Got to give the guy credit. At least he's trying to trying to trying to strike some deals here. He's trying to make deals. It didn't work, but you know he just wanted he just wanted everyone to stop fighting. A consistent theme in the history of socialism and especially social revolutions is there was a the immediate period after people who the the people revolutionaries they try they actually do try to do some deals and consistently the bourgeoisie says yeah they're like no, no fuck off like we we're gonna win in the end and you know what they were right but. For now, we don't have to think about that. No. So on the 22nd of March, 1871, there were some demonstrators, some fucking gusanos, all right, holding banners, declaring themselves to be friends of peace. Oh, my God. Demonstrating against the commune government. They were like Paris 911, SOS Paris. It's some, it's some like, you know, like you, you, you have, yeah, SOS Paris, some like CIA, you know, some, 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 you know, some ops happened. Yeah, it was an op. All right. And they were blocked from entering the Place Vendôme by some guardsmen who, all right, after being fired on, opened fire on this crowd. Um, not great. At least 12 people were killed and many were wounded. And this event was labeled the Massacre 
in the Rue de la Paix. So I guess the this was the first act of violence against Parisian citizens yeah. by the commune government. Yeah, so maybe not the best way to react to it, but, you know, it's definitely complicated here. It's complicated, folks. Also, um, March 22nd, the day before the elections, um, the Central Committee declared itself the legitimate government of Paris. That's what's up. And told the elected Republican mayors like Clemenceau to fuck off. They're basically like, Sorry, man, you're not the mayor of Montmartre anymore. Fucking deal with it. And Clemenceau, he had some cope and he had some seeth. All right. He said, we are caught between two bands of crazy people. Those sitting in Versailles and those in Paris. Just cope. Just, you're just. You, do, I hear, do I see some like, do I see some copium coming up? Because like. Oh, my God. Like, oh, both sides are so crazy. Shut up. Pick one. Yeah, Exactly. So what do we got now? The elections of the 26th of March happened um, and they finally elected a commune council. Folks. Hey. Folks. Hey. Of uh, 92 members, one for every 20,000 residents. Now, ahead of these elections, the Central Committee and the leaders of the International gave out their list of candidates, mostly belonging to the extreme left. It's a slate, folks. They, they had yeah. some strong slates going. Um, the candidates had only a few days to campaign. Tears government in Versailles urged Parisians to abstain from voting. Come on. Haha. <laughs> see how the bourgeoisie like it when democracies waited against them. It doesn't feel good, does it? Huh? No, no. It's like, oh, when you talk about, oh, why don't why don't workers vote in elections in every other election? Hmm, maybe that's why. Hmm. So when the voting was finished, we had um oh. 233 Parisians had voted. 200,000. 233,000 Parisians had voted. Sorry, getting a little tired. Out of 485,000 registered voters, or 48%. It's a decent amount. Which is like not bad in any election, but especially an election in which like a bunch of people are boycotting it. And also, this is just shortly after, a, you know, basically a revolution happened. So, you yeah. know, pretty good attendance given that. Not bad. Um, in upper class neighborhoods, a lot of people abstained from voting. Wah, wah. Um, 77% of voters in the 7th and 8th arrondissement abstained from voting. 68% like the rich people, they didn't vote. But in the working class neighborhoods, turnout was incredibly high. Turnout was 76% in the 20th arrondissement. And you know, similar levels in the other working class neighborhoods. They're pretty well. They're pretty good turnout. Pretty and again, pretty good. Pretty good. So uh, let's see. At the end, um, a council was elected and the professions represented were, I'll tell you, we had 33 workers. Pretty good. We had five small businessmen. Okay. That's like about appropriate. That's I about mean, how much they deserve. I mean, it's not, they have representation, but not, you know, oversized. Yeah. Which, you know, is more similar to what it is in reality in terms of the, the population. Yeah. We had 19 clerks, accountants, and other office staff. Okay, okay. Which I think count as workers. Yeah, no, um, they, they do. But, you know, they're not like industrial workers. Yeah. We had 12 journalists. Okay. Hey, fucking get some PMCs in there. Yep. Um, and a selection of workers in the liberal arts. Nice. You know, I'm sure there were some like poets and artists and shit. It's France. But, you know, you got you got a diverse crew. You know, that's a, that's a pretty yeah. diverse profession. I mean, more more so than in this fucking government. It's true. Um, and most of these people were fairly radical. Um, Clemenceau, that lib, uh, <laughs> he got fewer than 800 votes. That, he got owned. He got owned. And some of the Republicans who did win, they refused to be seated. Damn. They're like, this is like, no, we don't like this at all. This This will not do. So, ladies and gentlemen... We got ourselves a Paris commune. Yeah, they did it. This is and this is the start of that. Next episode, we'll talk more about what did they actually do. What did they do in those two short months, and then what happened after that? There was a unfortunately the last week of their existence was something known as Bloody Week. It's pretty bad, and it was a horrible massacre, probably the worst massacre done by a government of its own people in Europe at that time, and for a long time until World War One, pretty much. But for now. We can be happy because we're in a happy part of the story. Yes. We're, we, I mean, you know, it, it is it is a triumph of the proletariat. You know, it, it, uh, it, there's a reason why people focus on it. It's because we saw over the course of decades, you know, there's this kind of, and you know, 
first like these canoe revolts you know worker worker revolt worker revolt worker revolt and then like worsening worsening conditions and then continuing insurrection pushing back against the government and then you know there's also larger historical factors outside the control of any of the workers but that led to more miseration but it's not that the miseration led to people doing something about it rather it's that workers decided no we won't stand for this and we will decide to push back on this and eventually they ran they got what they wanted they got their commune they got it. They got it for a hot minute anyway. Yeah, it's so frustrating to read about all of this shit. They, they like tried and tried and tried so many times. And finally, for at least a second, they did the thing. They, they, they did the fucking thing that we are probably going to live our whole lives without seeing happen in our time and place. Although you never know. So we'll see. It's yeah, we'll see. But it's important to study these moments because we can figure out, um, you know, what leads up to them. We can figure out what makes them pop off and we can figure out, you know, hopefully what's contingency and what is stuff that was under the control of these workers and these organizers doing it. It's true. And, you know, next time we'll we'll find out. Maybe more why is it that Mark considers this the first instance of a dictatorship of the proletariat? Dick Pro. That's Pearl. right. Because I'm not even going to try to sing my little song because I'm so like tired and a little bit sick still. But you know, you know how it goes. Right? Right? Until next time. <laughs> Do the reading. Do the fucking reading. Les rêves des sont comme le bon vin Ils donnent de la joie Ou bien du chagrin Affaibli par la faim Je suis malheureux Pollant en chemin Tout ce que je peux Car rien n'est gratuit Dans la vie L'espoir est un plat Bien Sous-titrage